My name is Nick, and I'm the associate minister here at Knox, and I'm so glad to be worshiping the living God with you today. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this written word, this word by which you continue to speak to your people. And so we pray that you would speak to us this day, that your Holy Spirit would interpret it in our hearts and for our lives that we would be transformed by it and encouraged in the way of Christ. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Psalm 37, which was the reading we just heard, is a psalm of David which sounds like it belongs more in the book of Proverbs or even of Ecclesiastes than of Psalms. It's a poem firmly rooted in the tradition of wisdom, and perhaps that's one of the things that intrigues me most about it. It's also one of the Psalms which is an alphabetical acrostic. Every second verse or so begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And this seems to be intended to leave us with the impression that it is a poem about the ordered way of the world, about all of life beginning to end. It is telling us what we need to know to enjoy the good life. Everything from A through Z, or in Hebrew, Aleph to Tav. Because who doesn't want to know the ABCs of joy and satisfaction? The good life which Psalm 37 paints a picture of for us is also a picture of a pretty simple way of life. What the psalmist is trying to convey isn't complicated, isn't really fancy at all. The first few verses spell it out for us. Trust in the Lord and do good. Live in the land. Delight in the Lord. Commit your way to him. The words of that old hymn of the church come to mind. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. This sentiment seems to have been in the heart of the psalmist for those who would hear him. It really is that simple. It really is that simple, and it really is that complicated. Because it's easy for us to say, do not fret because of those who do evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. Or to say, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And it is far, far more difficult to live lives marked in these ways. It's difficult not to get angry about those who do evil. They're doing evil. And worse than just doing evil, they seem to be getting away with it. How can we not be envious of those who do wrong? They don't have a care in the world. All their wants and needs are met. It seems like they've understood what's really required to get by in this life. It's difficult. This psalm and the wisdom that it provides is about challenging us to aspire toward living good and righteous lives. Frequently, it juxtaposes the lives of the righteous and the wicked, and the only difference between these two and how they live is not the capacity of the righteous to make good decisions. It's not about having a perfect moral code. It's about the simple choice to trust in God. Trusting God is the only choice we need to make again and again, day in and day out, to respond to each situation with faith in the one who created us, 
trusting the goodness of our Father, knowing that the victory is because of the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, and no other work of ours, no other power in this world, nothing else at all will put an end to the wicked. So this is why God knows the ways of the righteous, because their ways are God's ways. The psalm is also realistic about that, though. It doesn't anticipate perfection while we try to walk along God's path. We will stumble. But the promise is we won't fall. Stumbling in God's path is one thing, but walking in the way of the wicked is quite another. Stumbling on the path of righteousness, God will uphold us by his hand. The ways of the good life are all about God's ways, not ours. The psalm reiterates this again and again. Our ways lead to evil. We try to solve problems and we end up making them worse. We have a righteous anger in our hearts, but we own it and we refuse to trust it to God and it eats away at us. We search for the wicked that we might judge their actions, that we might teach them something But one day God promises us we will not find them any longer. And what will we have spent our lives on? We will have spent all of our days angry at the grass of the field, which was here in the winter and burnt up in the summer. We will have spent tiresome and frustrating lives fretting about what was always passing away, never trusting that God really was going to act that God really does laugh at the wicked because their day is coming. Our capacity to trust in God, to have this kind of trust, to not worry about those who do evil or be envious of those who do wrong, it boils down to how much we can trust what it says and believe what it says in verse 16. Better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked. Do we believe that? This is the question we're always meant to ask when we read wisdom literature. Is this true? Can we believe that? In a society which honors the rich and lionizes the powerful, where capital is king, is the poverty of an honest day's work really better than the riches of those who exploit the poor? If we think it is, then what have we to worry about from the likes of the Westons or the Irvings, of Musk, or of Bezos. And more than just about wealth, this is also about what the righteous seek that the wicked do not seek. Better the little justice that the righteous have than the abundant corruption of the wealthy. Better the little peace that we hold dear than the vast riches of a warlord. Better the small and simple joy which we cherish than the consuming dissatisfaction of the greedy. Better still, the very few moments we have where we know God's presence than the insatiable and unending self-pleasure of a world which is passing away. St. Augustine, who is a North African bishop and doctor of the church, put it in this way. He says, peace will be your gold. Peace will be your silver. Peace will be your broad estates. Peace your very life. Your God will be your peace. Peace will be for you whatever you long for. In this world, 
gold cannot also be silver for you. Wine cannot be bread for you. What gives you light cannot provide you with drink. But your God will be everything for you. You will feed on him and hunger will never come near you. You will drink from him and never thirst again. You will be illumined by him that you may suffer no blindness. You will be supported by him and saved from weakness. Truly, all of this, however little of it we may know now, is better today and better forevermore than the vastness of the wealth of the wicked. They are truly needy though they have much. This is the truth of the promise that if we delight in the Lord, he will give us the desires of our hearts. It's not that God's going to make us wealthy, which is what some people really want to hear, or that God's going to give us the family that we've dreamt of or the life that we planned out for ourselves. Because if we delight in the Lord, then our desire will be for the Lord and for his justice and for his very good kingdom. And of these things we can be certain that if we ask, it will be given us. If we seek, we will find it. And if we knock, the door will be opened. For whoever asks, receives. Whoever seeks, finds. And whoever knocks, the door will be opened for. This is the promise of our Lord. Then we come to this very difficult saying. In verse 25, David writes, I was young, And now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. And if we're asking that same question we always ask of wisdom literature, is this true? Do I believe this? That's not true, right? We don't believe that. It doesn't sound true. We might wonder if David had been paying attention at all. How had he never seen the righteous forsaken? We don't have to look very far at all to see these kinds of concerns. There are refugees in our city who cannot access shelter beds because there are no shelter beds, but they also can't receive funding from the government to pay for rent in the city until they're in a shelter. Forsaken people in a land that they'd hoped to delight in. There are families who grieve the loss of children taken by violence in our city, hungry not for bread, but for life. There are those among us today who worry about losing their homes and their apartments, about their next meal, about their next appointment with their doctor. How has David never seen the righteous forsaken or their children go hungry when the unjust suffering of many is plain for us all to see. The English poet Edmund Blunden, writing after his experience of the First World War and witnessing the Great Depression, wrote a poem inspired by this psalm where he writes, I have been young and now not too old, and I have seen the righteous forsaken, his health, his honor, and his quality taken. This is not what we were formerly told. Edmund, despite being not too old, had already seen the righteous forsaken. 
He wrestles with the gap between what we've been told in this psalm and what we've experienced in our own lives. Because it seems that both of these things just can't be true. We have all at times felt forsaken. Even when we're, we're trusting God and it seemed like God just didn't show up for us. And it's easy to explain this away and say that it must be because of our sin. But not all suffering is due to our sin. We have all suffered for doing the right thing. All of us have had less than we may have had if we look to our own advantage rather than to the good. And even though this line seems to suggest such things shouldn't happen, elsewhere in the scriptures it is quite plain that yes, even the righteous suffer need and want and sorrow. Once again, St. Augustine challenges us. He says, did you believe in Christ? Yes? Then why did you believe? What did he promise you? If Christ promised you happiness in this world, then go ahead and complain against him. Complain whenever you see the unbeliever unhappy. But what sort of happiness did he, in fact, promise you? Nothing else but happiness when the dead are raised again. And what did he promise you in this life? Only what he himself went through. So how are we to understand this verse? Is David just wrong? Well, the psalm itself acknowledges that God is help to the righteous. Why does God need to help and deliver them if they have no trouble? They do no trouble. Christ promised us trouble. But far, far more importantly, God will not just watch our trouble. The 20th century rabbi, Joseph Soloveitchik, who is widely just called the Rav because he had such an impact on Judaism over the last century, believes that we should interpret see here to mean see and only see, watch and do nothing. He makes the parallel of Esther, who could not bear to see the plight of her people and so did something about it. David may mean to say that in his trusting of the Lord, he has never simply looked on the suffering of the righteous. That in walking in God's way, he cannot bear to be complacent when another suffers. This, I think, turns this verse on its head for us. We are called to not simply see the righteous forsaken or the, their children begging for bread, but in fact we are called to do something about it because we are also walking in God's way and we are assured that God does not stand idly by either. Truly, they are not forsaken. God is with them. The Lord helps and delivers them. And why not with our hands? When we see one who seems forsaken, who is hungry or lonely or forgotten, we must ask, would God help this person? And I think we know the answer. And knowing the answer then, if we are able to help them, then we are called to believe that we surely should. Because we cannot see the righteous suffer and do nothing about it even as God cannot see the strong oppress the weak and let it pass. If we cannot help them from our own resources, however great or little they may be, 
we can at least help in prayer, that God would hasten to the aid of these righteous ones, that God would be quick to help those who find their shelter in him. And I do not mean to pray in that way where we say we'll pray for someone and then we quickly do not, but rather to spend the resource of our time to go before our Father who is even now renewing all things and to ask for this one who needs him to be restored, that this righteous one who waits on him should be met in their waiting. And if that's you today, if you feel like you've been waiting for God to do something, if you have some need that's not been met, that though you're trying to walk in God's way, bread eludes you, bills pile up, sorrows grow, please speak with a pastor this morning. This table is a reminder to us that we are now one in Christ Jesus, and we, like him, cannot simply see the righteous suffer. At the very least, let us pray for you. And our church also collects specially designated donations to help those among us who are in need. And if that might be you, consider that God may serve you through the care of this community. Because God has always been a present help in time of trouble. David knew this in his life. God's people Israel knew this by God's presence in a pillar of fire and cloud in their trouble. The prophet of old saw angel armies prepared to defend the righteous. God cannot help but help. Rejoices when the wicked are undone by their own schemes. Longs to draw near to those who seek him and to console us in our suffering. This we have known most fully in Jesus, who is our God with us, who could not bear to simply see the affliction of all those who waited on the Lord, and so set aside his glory, becoming in the very nature a servant, that we might receive him and know by his love God's love, and know by his arms wide open embrace of the whole world on that cross, that we will never be forsaken because God has gone before us to that most forsaken place, even to the grave itself, so that we would never be alone. Assured of this very good news, we will not worry. We will not fret. We will not let anger lead us in sin or the wicked tempt us from the paths of justice because though we stumble, God's right hand holds us fast. Though we suffer, we will inherit the earth. And though we have little, the little that we do have is that still small voice of promise that there is an inheritance prepared for us and a kingdom beyond all reckoning. If only we would be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. For he is our help and our salvation and we will never be forsaken. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. We hope that the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you through this psalm and through these words and, and to let you linger in that wondering. We have a couple of questions that you might pray about in this time and take with you through this week. And the first is, what small thing, what small thing of the righteous has God already given to you that you can rejoice in? And then secondly, what suffering do others know that you may be able to care for and help?
I'll give you a couple of minutes to pray and to reflect on these things now. Mercy. 